0: Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Gene Wilder's silent era comedy, The World's Greatest Lover. Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is my frenemy, Doug Tilly. Doug, how's life right now? As if I care.
1: Well, I would hope that you would care, Liam. Oh, I but do we're, actually. It, life is in transition at the moment, is what. as uh, how okay. I would describe it. Okay. I mean, it's that time of the year. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're hitting the, the early days of fall, just about, end of summer, uh, beginning of fall. And uh, with the the state of the world, not a good state, I must uh, reinforce again and yeah, again every time true. we record. very true, very um, true. But it, life is, I wouldn't say it's returning to normal, because I don't know if there is a, a normal. W- whatever the new normal is going to be, we're kind of transitioning towards it. So uh, I'm trying to stay positive. It's very, very difficult. Um, but, uh, but things are not uh overwhelmingly crushingly terrible for me personally at the moment
0: you know what doug when the vaccine first came out uh i was pretty excited that maybe things would start to transition back to normality and then um across the country they started announcing shows and at first there was like no shows announced in chicago so the first show that got announced in Chicago for September, I excitedly bought a ticket, even though there weren't even that many bands on the show I wanted to see. Sure. I just was like, this is my return back right, to normality. Right. Absolutely. Well, that show happened last night, and I didn't fucking go. Because <laughs> the Delta variant is going nuts right now. Things are crazy. And I was like, I just don't trust that it's safe to be in a room with a bunch of other you know, idiots. So I'm not going to go. And uh, that's hard, because that, that buying that ticket was like my note of hope that maybe life was gonna come back, and not going was my mild feeling of defeat, at least temporary defeat. I'm not gonna say for all time, but at least for this particular uh, moment, I don't feel like uh, we're winning, Doug, and it's it's a bummer. It's a bummer to me, but. We're not here.
1: I, I, sorry i i know that we're moving on to something else but i was intentionally being vague about my feelings on things so i wouldn't kind of center myself at a time and space but since we're we are talking about things specifically i just want to mention so i haven't been returning to real life right i haven't been going to restaurants sure. i haven't been going to movie theaters yeah. i'm still too nervous to be doing that but my work situation is such that uh and longtime listeners probably know that i used to work in a university so the universities here in Canada, all start opening up after Labor Day. So right around the time that we're recording this, but not quite at the time that we're recording this. Meaning that starting very soon, I will theoretically be in rooms full of people indoors for the first time in like a year and a half. And I have to say, it gives me a lot of anxiety to think about that. But it's my job, right? It's my potential livelihood. So it's, uh, it's difficult. Uh, now, one thing is that here in Ontario, at the university I'll be attending, uh, the students and staff are required to ha- have proof that they're vaccinated. But I don't know. I don't think for me that that is necessarily enough. Um, but but I-, I will persevere and try not to die before the end of 2021. That is my promise to you, listeners.
0: Well, you know, all you can do is try, especially when it comes to not dying. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're not here uh, to talk about death per se. We're here to talk about. Carol Kane, and on this episode, we're going to be discussing 1977's The World's Greatest Lover. Before mm. we do that, though, we had, uh, you know, there's not a, a, a huge amount of Carol Kane news, but there is a little tidbit we wanted to talk to you all about uh,
1: involving Diane Keaton. Doug, you like Diane Keaton? You know what? I do. I think yeah. she's pretty neat, right? Yeah. even though even though a lot of her career has been connected to someone that we have complicated feelings about, yeah. as we talked about at length here on the Praising Game podcast. I think if we thought
0: about it, we could say that it's probably involved a number of people that we're none sure about as human beings, but that's just <laughs> life, I guess. Uh, back in June, Interview Magazine did an interview with Diane Keaton where the questions were submitted by her friends, famous friends. Uh, Martin Short, Steve Martin, Ellen DeGeneres, Goldie Hawn, uh, Emma Roberts, who we know as the daughter of Eric Roberts. (laughs) That's solely what we know her as, actually. (laughs) I think I've seen her in a couple things, maybe. I don't know. I I literally don't think I could pick her out of a lineup. I'm sorry, y'all. And, of course, Carol Kane. Uh, The Carol Kane question was pretty interesting. Uh, She asked, at this time in your life, what do you value most? Keaton replied, I value a very strong friendship, like ours, not like mine and yours, Doug, like theirs, Uh which I've depended on for such a long time. I love to walk with my dog. These are the things I love. And I really do love nature. I love exploring California. I like driving to Arizona. Somebody has to. I really enjoy seeing. I guess my favorite thing, yeah, the seeing line is weird. We're just, gonna just going to keep going. She just
1: enjoys seeing. Hey, you know what? I sometimes have, this is the completely off topic, I sometimes have nightmares about going blind, and I'm yeah. sorry if we have any blind or, or sight impaired listeners, but to me it's something I'm. I have a really great fear about. So her saying that I really enjoy seeing, it speaks specifically to me, because I also enjoy seeing. I mean, she literally says, y'all, Let me finish the quote here. I really enjoy seeing.
0: I guess my favorite thing in life is the fact that I can see. It's just so unbelievable. And to be fair, I don't know that I completely disagree with her, but I do think, like... If I was vision impaired, I might be a little like, oh, thanks, Diane. You know, like, I don't know. Uh, But still, you know, I I get it. Like, I think for us specifically, me and you both interact with film, which is a primarily visual media. It's not exclusively. I think, you know, uh, obviously uh, people enjoy uh, listening to films as well. Sure. (laughs) But, but, uh, But losing my sight. Yeah. I mean. But then again, I could go either direction, right? I'm also obsessed with music, and so losing my hearing is something that... You know. Well, okay.
1: All right. So if you had, between uh, all the five senses... Sure. If you had to lose one, which would it be? I really put you on the spot here. No, I, it, it, and it's a fair question. Well, how about um, this? I, I'll, I'll switch it around a little bit to make it a little easier. What's the one that you're most concerned about losing? And I think it really comes I, down to probably hearing and sight, right? I think it'd be, it would probably be sight more than
0: hearing. Because here's yeah. the thing. Like, I don't want to lose taste or smell, per se, but I don't think they would, you know, kill me. And touch... Is is unlikely. It's hard for me to imagine, and probably would just result in all kinds of horrible injuries because you wouldn't realize that you're sure. hurting yourself. But, uh, but really, you know, the thing that we're thinking about is sight and hearing, and for me, I think it would be sight, which is you know maybe unfair, uh, but it just seems like that's the one that would be the most difficult for me i will say if you do did lose hearing though you would have to learn a new language and in the past i've shown a uh, not a good proficiency for new languages you right. know like i've tried to learn um spanish latin uh uh what else greek and uh <laughs> all those were failures so i don't know how I would do with American Sign Language. Uh, But hopefully, I could pick it up. You know? I don't don't know.
1: It is interesting that we live in a time period where people have experienced, in the recent past, many, many people, a loss of taste and smell because of some of the reactions to the the virus. So it's... I wonder if that has people gaining a new appreciation for some of those senses. I've had some hearing issues in the past that have certainly made me very concerned about potentially losing my hearing altogether. But uh, but yeah, I'm like you. Like I said, I, I love seeing. I wonder if Diane Keaton, the fact that she wears glasses, gives her an extra appreciation for the ability to see as well.
0: Yeah, I I, I hope so. Uh, I, I appreciate... <laughs> <Do> you? <laughs> well, just in the sense that, like, you know, that... that uh obviously seeing is like important thing in her life. So I hope it continues on. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) She'll be glad to hear this. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I, I, I also want to say, I appreciate that. uh, Carol Kane's question here. I think it's actually a good, it's a, it's a quality.
1: I I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen the other questions, so who
0: knows, but I I like this. I like this question.
1: Um, I also think it's kind of interesting that they are friends. I don't know what other work they have necessarily been in, but of course, you know, Annie Hall was an important film for both of them, but they don't appear in any scenes together in that movie.
0: Yeah, I'm assuming they just know each other through other connections, right? Like, of I don't. I mean, one of the things that I've learned, thanks to TikTok, is that uh, Ryan Reynolds and Mac from It's Always Sunny are very good friends and hang out all the time. They've never worked together from what I can tell, right? I don't think, unless there's something, some secret uh, Ryan Reynolds appearance on It's Always Sunny, you know, but... Uh, but I do find it their TikToks together very hilarious. So
1: I've cracked the code, Liam. Yeah, they appeared together in 1989's The Lemon Sisters.
0: Oh, that actually okay. That's one of the things I don't know anything about. So that's a good transition too, Doug, because you know people know who've listened to this show, but maybe we have some new listeners. We're covering Carol Kane's career chronologically. We're not just hitting the things that we know about uh and this film today's film is included in that i had never even heard of this film before it came up in our lineup uh and so i thought it might be interesting and and by i thought i I mean doug thought uh that (laughs) for us to discuss the upcoming next five movies and you know this is an opportunity of course for our audience to maybe think ahead about catching some of these movies before we cover them but also gives us a, a chance to sort of check in and see like What here we're excited about covering, what we've seen before, what our thoughts are going in
1: uh, ahead of time. So uh, would you be willing to do that with me, Doug? Yeah, I mean, I did write it. It was my idea, so yeah, yeah, I'm willing willing to. All
0: right, I'm just playing (laughs) along here, Doug. I'm trying to do the kayfabe over here, all right? God damn it. Uh, So up next, we have uh, 1978's The Mafu Cage. Doug, have you seen this before?
1: No, we've talked about this, I think, in the very first episode of Praising Cain. You talked about how notorious this film was, or at least we've we've referred to it previously. I have not, though I have to say, since you first brought it up, you know, talking about how it's kind of notorious, I've seen references to it everywhere. I've seen it uh, being shown on some of those kind of online movie things. People talk about it as if it has this reputation. I have to say, again, it's the next movie after the one we're talking about today. I'm extremely curious about it.
0: I'm excited because I now own it on Blu-ray, and so I'm excited to open up my Blu-ray and watch it, because I haven't had a chance to yet. Uh, I saw this movie at a 12-hour exploitation film fest, and it blew me away. Uh, it was maybe
1: my favorite film of the day, so I'm excited for you to watch it and tell me what you think about it. It does sound like it's going to be quite a different kind of movie than the one that we're talking about today. Yeah, I know. It's I'm pretty
0: stoked. Uh Up next after that is 1978's The Muppet Movie, a little-known indie project. Probably people don't know what it is. Uh, No, I
1: mean, that's a movie I grew up on, Doug. Is is this part of your childhood, The Muppet Movie? You know, it's funny. When I was growing up, I watched The Muppets Take Manhattan a lot, uh, and also one of my childhood favorites, Follow That Bird. I did, of course, see The Muppet Movie, but I actually... I, I sometimes conflate things about uh, The Muppets Take Manhattan and The Muppet Movie together, so I can't remember how much of it specifically I'm thinking of when I think of it. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that. Again, uh, we're, we're hitting on to a point where we're getting some kind of big-named movies, which is something that I'm very excited about on this particular show because you know, we're, we've, we're coming off a few movies that are not quite so well-known.
0: Yeah, I agree, um, and I think it's cool to have references for people to sort of connect to, uh, even if they aren't coming in as big Carol Kane fans. It's something that they'll you know, be able to identify. Another movie uh, on this list that I think people have heard of, but I would say is in my, honestly, shame pile of movies I probably Ooh. should have seen but have not, is When a Stranger Calls. I've never seen it. And it seems like a pretty important, scary movie. Doug, have you seen When a Stranger Calls?
1: I have. I do think it's one of the more iconic Carol Kane roles to a right. certain extent. Right, yes. I mean, she even came back for the sequel something like 15 years later. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it. I don't know if even in horror circles it maintains a really, really high reputation, but it is a movie that the central premise is one that people think about when they think about horror movies. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a role that's very important for her career. So it's one that I'm particularly looking forward to revisiting as well.
0: It's interesting because it's followed in the same year, 1979, by a film I have never heard of called Mm. La Sabina. Do you know anything about this movie, Doug?
1: Almost nothing at all. I knew it was filmed in Spain. Uh, It it seems like it has a Spanish director and crew. Uh, I'm I'm more interested in regards to this film. I mean, I'm interested in seeing it, of course, but also finding out a little bit about it and how she ended up in it at all it seems kind of a, a random uh, uh considering that that the movies that immediately preceded are very kind of Hollywood-ish movies this seems kind of an off the wall thing but by 1979 who knows right what we're going to find is immediately after 1979 there's a break like a lengthy break uh she she has no films at all that's that are listed as coming out in 1980. so the final film that we're talking about here is one that i'm very curious about from 1981 Called the Games of Countess Dolingen, uh, based on a Bram Stoker novel, and this is a movie that I think is fairly uh, rare. Like it's difficult to track down. I actually just got a copy of it about a month ago, uh, and it was—I uh, don't know uh, how how uh, how well regarded it is necessarily, but it does seem very interesting. And one of the great things, or most unique things about it, is that it actually stars Carol Kane. Uh, we don't have. Yeah, we have. We haven't encountered many films where she is kind of the lead name yet hopefully that's something we're going to encounter more once we hit the 1980s but uh that that uh that's one of the notable things about this drama from 1981 um yeah it's it's some sort of kind of horror drama hybrid i think very curious about this one
0: well, speaking of breaks, we're about to take one, but I agree. I'm I'm excited. I'm also excited that this little capsule we've given people of five films, it's all over the place. We've got Mafu Cage, a true psychotronic classic. We've got the Muppet movie, a movie that many people in our audience probably grew up on, or if not mm-hmm. that movie, a property that people can understand. When a Stranger Calls... Uh, a horror classic, but one that maybe doesn't get the appreciation now that it should. La Sabina, a, a Spanish film that we know almost nothing <laughs> about. And uh, The Games of Countess... Uh, how do you say it? Dolingen? I say um, Dolingen. Yeah, which again is not something I've ever heard of, but is like related to Bram Stoker, an author that is very well known, but maybe is only well known for one work, really. So I don't know. I'm interested because of the variety, which is part of the reason we even decided to do this podcast in the first place, that her career encapsulates so many kinds of films at so many moments in time.
1: Yeah, I look, if you're looking for agreement, I'm there with you all the way. I mean, it's it, the fact is, we are not yet at the point where Carol Kane would be, I mean, Household Name might be a little bit of a stretch at any point, but she's not a, a performer that people uh, connect with a certain kind of movie. So her roles are all over the place, comedies, dramas, right? The fact is, the movie that we're talking about and are going to talk about after this break is a wacky, some might say corny, comedy in like the Mel Brooks vein, and we're going to be moving in just a few movies to these like horror movies and dramas. At this point, you can't pinpoint what Carol Kane is because nobody knows what she is yet. But uh, maybe we'll figure it out before we finish this podcast. I feel like
0: the role that she has in this movie we're going to discuss today becomes at least one of the standard Carol Kane things. I think it probably has been a little bit up her alley till now. I think it's similar to some of the other things we've seen her do. Uh, But it will be interesting to see the transition from this movie to Mafu Cage, which weirdly has some elements of other things she's done in the past, but is also completely unique in and of itself. Well, Anyways.
1: The other thing is, of course, Liam, and something we didn't bring up when it comes to the break between La Sabina and the games of Countess Dolingen, which is that in 1980, a television show named taxi starts exactly yeah she's going to be part of that and i think that is because it's going to be seen by so many people a massively popular sitcom it's going to help define how people see her as a performer for the 1980s but i guess we'll find out about that soon. well we'll take a quick break we're going to come back and talk to all of you about
0: the world's greatest lover I'm the best actor in the world, not because I'm the sexiest man in the world, not because I'm the most handsome man in the world, but because I am unique!
1: You are the in Pictures, you're wonderful to see.
0: Neurotic Baker travels to Hollywood to attend a talent search for an actor to rival the great Valentino. Although not an actor, through blind luck he succeeds, to a certain degree. It's 1977's The World's Greatest Lover, starring... Written, directed by Gene Wilder. You know who he is. Come on, Gene Wilder. He's the man. He also directed The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, The Woman in Red, Haunted Honeymoon. He obviously wrote uh, all of these directorial efforts as well. He also wrote Young Frankenstein, a movie I love, See No Evil, Hear No Evil with uh, Richard Pryor, and uh, two TV movies in the late 90s. Um, the film uh, is one of, I guess, a few movies that came out about uh, Valentino... That year, uh, as we said, stars Gene Wilder, also Carol Kane as Annie Hickman, Dom DeLuise, uh as a- uh, Adolf Zitz, Fritz Feld as uh, Tommaso Abalone, and Ronnie Graham as the director. Uh, and notably, Danny DeVito, a very young Danny DeVito, as assistant director. Uh, the film was freely adapted from Federico Fellini's The White Sheik from 1952. Uh, The film carries a credit to Federico Fellini uh, for encouragement at the right time. That comes uh, right at the end. Is that correct, Doug?
1: Yeah, well, you shouldn't have to ask me whether it's correct. You've seen the movie as well.
0: (laughs) Right, but I forgot if it was at
1: the beginning or the end. Yeah, it's at the very last thing you see is this kind of thanks for encouragement, which is kind of strange considering that – that, you know, it is adapted from one of Felini's films. Thanks for the encouragement of letting you remake one of my movies. It was strange, right?
0: Like, I, so I had, I didn't know about this before watching the film. Sure. When that note came up, would you, were, did you know that that was happening or were you
1: as surprised as I was? I've never seen The White Cheek, so, and I, and it's not a direct adaptation, but it does have certain elements. Like the idea of the wife character kind of running off to... to be with this person that she idolizes. I mean, it, there is similar plot points here. It's more like kind of a comedic spin on the same idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, as we've already noted when we covered Valentino, this is uh, uh, the second Valentino-related movie that Carol Kane has been in. Um, critics at the time didn't really like this movie. They compared it to uh, Wilder's earlier works with Mel Brooks, and uh, were, we're unimpressed by it. Um, Doug, I want to know what you thought of the world's greatest lover. It's a really strange
1: movie. Liam. <laughs> is it, really... Doug? Is it strange? It is strange. And you can see why people would would compare it to Gene Wilder's work with Mel Brooks. This was the the period where Mel Brooks was kind of firing on all cylinders. Yeah. It would have been right after the release of Silent Movie, which is a movie I have a lot of time for, uh, which has a lot of the same cast as this movie. And there are a lot of recognizable faces in this cast generally from the works of Mel Brooks and the work that... Gene Wilder has worked specifically with Mel Brooks to do so it invites that comparison and I will say Liam there are parts of this movie that I do find amusing and fun and funny and there's a lot of it that is very corny like super fucking it's it's the kind of movie that it's trying very very hard to be funny and that to me you can start to see the flop sweat a little bit where it's kind of like a desperation they're trying to fit in quote unquote comedic situations into everything and sometimes it becomes exhausting sometimes the scenes go on too long which isn't to say that it's all a failure but I will say that I actually think it gets worse as it goes along as it tries to get more into this plot this idea that this character is running away from his life as a baker he's gonna go to Mm -hmm. Hollywood where they're having this giant audition to find basically the next Valentino that's kind of the scenario And the other part of it is that his wife, uh, Carol Kane, Gene Wilder's wife in this film, she is obsessed with the real Valentino. And when they get to Hollywood, she leaves him to, to basically try to woo or be wooed by the real Valentino. And that is basically all you need to know about the plot of this movie. The other kind of comedic center kind of core of this movie is that this character that Gene Wilder plays has a lot of quirks yeah. when he gets when he gets uh and I guess they set that up like this feels like the concept first like the the idea of this movie is here's this not necessarily dashing guy who is going to go to Hollywood to play this very very dashing role but he has some problems the problems are when he gets nervous he sticks his tongue out he loses so he he gets laryngitis for like seconds at a time and and he starts mixing up words so it's <laughs> And like that is supposed to be the height of comedy. He just sticks his tongue out sometimes. And we're supposed to be like, so funny, so hilarious. He's sticking his tongue out. Got to be honest, that did not work for me. And I love Gene Wilder. I will say that he does have one... um, He has a tool in his his kind of collection of tricks that does work for me which is when he starts yelling I find Gene Wilder yelling to be just naturally a very funny thing but he does it a lot in this movie to the point where he kind of comes off like a fucking asshole so instead of being this likable guy by the end of the movie you're kind of exhausted by him because he just has not been likable the entire time and you can kind of understand why Carol Kane would try to get away from him at that point
0: Doug, your evaluation of the movie seems to be that, despite having a you know a few you know truly funny, uh, witty moments, overall it doesn't work for you. Uh, could you go ahead and tell me what any of those moments were? Because I'm oh, not convinced sure. they exist.
1: No, absolutely. And a lot of it is that this movie has to it exists in a universe, let's say, where everyone is an idiot, so they have to be easily tricked into scenarios. That no real person would be like there's a part in this movie where they're on a train and Gene Wilder puts his bag up and when he puts bag up the he was sitting next to his wife the, the train jumps a little bit and somehow everyone switches around so then he starts cuddling with someone he thinks is his wife but it's obviously a grown man with a mustache and then that leads to a series of frankly gay panicky type scenarios where he's accidentally cuddling this man again and again and again even though He's already found out at one point that he's accidentally done this and doesn't seem like <laughs> concerned that this might be what's happening again and again. So it's the way that this happens in the movie, even though all of what I just said, it's ridiculous, it, it, gay panicky. I do have to say it. <laughs> the fact that they kept going back to it <laughs> was very funny uh, to me. Uh, but uh, then I have uh, – when I say that this movie has a corny sense of humor, hey, at, at my core, I have a bit of a corny sense of humor as well. Um, I also mm. did like the fact that there's a part in this movie where he encounters the actual Valentino, and though that's not a very funny part, I do like the fact that as they're kind of bonding together, all he's telling Valentino is how much he wants to punch him in the face and how much he hates him. It just seems like that's the, the entire thing. Like Valentino is presented, unlike in the Valentino movie we covered on the most recent episode, as a perfect man that is beloved by all. Uh, Though they do also make a little reference to the fact that he might actually be gay in real life. But in, but in terms of their connection together, the core of it is just that he wants to beat the hell out of him because his wife likes him more than him and that he always compares his own life to Valentino's. So I will say that the concepts have some hilarious um, or have some comedic potential. And I also do want to say that Ronnie Graham, who plays the director in this movie, uh, he was also the writer of a few of Mel Brooks' works, including Spaceballs. I find him very funny as the director. I, I find his kind of put uponness to be very amusing, which is the opposite of how I find Dom DeLuise in this movie, who is just hamming it up a thousand percent.
0: Hmm, that's all very interesting, Doug. Let's return to the hilarity uh, you find in gay panic. There's actually a lot of gay panic in this movie. Were all those moments really funny for you? Or just <laughs> I see one? what you're
1: doing here, Liam. You're right. I mean, there are some very dated elements of this movie, and that it's not just the gay panic aspect of No, it. uh, no, it's not. <laughs> the, but, uh, but I will say that I feel like there's an interpretation of that that it's more like, uh, more like a Frasier-esque, uh, screwballish misunderstanding, as opposed to "Oh my God, I'm kissing a man," that sort of thing. But there is there are elements of that in this movie as well, including when somehow Gene Wilder falls out of his own hotel room, uh, and he feels like I think he thinks he's going to be dancing with Greta Garbo, but it ends up being a man instead, and then yep. he runs off from that. Yeah, there's there are elements of this movie. Uh, there's that are also not- the
0: moment where he is pretending to be Valentino uh, to seduce his own wife. But his first uh, gambit is to say, oh, I like boys, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be really funny. First, his voice as Valentino is supposed to be funny. And then the fact that he's saying that Valentino likes boys is supposed to be, like, really hilarious –
1: um, oh, let's not forget that a lot of the supporting characters—the the only funny thing about them is that they have some sort of speech impediment, or right. or it's like it's an Asian guy speaking with like a Danish accent as opposed to an exaggerated Asian accent, right. because That's what you would expect to happen in a movie like this. Yeah, by the by the way, that's James Hong in this movie. Uh, oh, movie. I
0: know. I was uh, uh, how do I put it? Uh, uh, disheartened. <laughs> usually when i see james hong show up i'm like yay and instead i was like oh damn uh because i thought that joke was stupid here's yeah. the thing doug is that like there's a few I, I will 100% give to you that most times gene Wilder yelling it's great uh and there are a couple of moments of physical comedy that will get me every time because physical comedy is like Just one of my soft spots. I have a soft spot for physical comedy. So, like, even though I didn't like the gay panic joke, the fact that he falls, you know, he literally tells his wife, played by Carol Kane, to get ready for them to make love because he's so excited Mm -hmm. about this amazing hotel room. And then instead he falls off the balcony and lands with another person. (laughs) Yeah. Gold. Gold. And that's that particular gay panic joke really bummed me out because I thought the slapstick leading to it was great. Or when, when uh, they have a sunken living room and at at a certain point, Carol Kane uh, leaves the water running, but also stuffs up the bathtub by mistake. And so then water fills up the sunken living room and him and his uncle swim to each other. I thought that was pretty funny in and of itself, but those are just a couple of moments here and there. Most of the movie, I don't know why the movie exists because if it's not funny To me, And and I kind of want to get your take on this. If if the movie isn't working comedically, I don't feel like there's a lot else to the movie to care about. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that the characters or the drama of the film are compelling if all the jokes are landing, say, like a a hunk of lead.
1: What what do you think about that? I mean, it's something that we've we kind of struggled with when it came to. Our discussion of Valentino, which is that neither of us have a lot of direct interest in this era of Hollywood, which it seemed like at this in the late 70s, there were lots of movies that were specifically about right. this era yes. of Hollywood, yes. and, and as we've already mentioned, specifically about Valentino in this aspect of Hollywood, and we're not that interested in him either. This is a movie just like Valentino was, just like I imagined the made for TV adaptation of or or a uh, biography of Valentino was that presupposes that you already have that interest. And part of the appeal is look at the golden age of Hollywood that you are seeing around the, you know, in this movie, all these comedic uh, um, moments that are occurring. So sure. you're supposed to find that interesting on top of it. My problem with this movie is outside of the comedy that occasionally I connected with, I don't have a lot of interest in what was happening outside of it. I don't... Like, the idea of this uh, search for the world's greatest lover and the fact that he's having trouble out of the thousands of people who audition who are just, like, terrible because one is cross-eyed or whatever. Um, like, it's not enough for me to be engaged with material. And, of course, the only thing that then that you have left to hang on is the relationship between Gene Wilder and Carol Kane. And even though I like both of those performers a lot, it's it, it'd be hard to say that they have much kind of... Um, there's, I, 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 was, I'm having trouble staying away from the word chemistry. They don't really have a lot of chemistry. They have comedic chemistry, but I wouldn't say that they have a the kind of chemistry where you're like, I can't wait to see these two characters reunite at the end.
0: Well, I think the issue with that is that if the movie's hilarious, maybe it doesn't matter that they don't right. have chemistry. Of course.
1: Absolutely, and in fact, th- that's the thing about the movie that the movies that this is most uh, often compared to, the works of Mel Brooks. The plots of them are not necessarily what keep people coming back to it. When you watch Blazing Saddles, the the fact that that movie turns into this farce at the end where they're leaving the set of the western and they're right it doesn't even matter really what the plot is even though the jokes all hang on kind of the central idea, but in terms of how these characters are ending up, you don't really care who kills each other, you know, it doesn't matter who ends up with each other because it's just a way to hang those jokes on. And when the jokes are good, that's great. When they're bad, then you end up with Robin Hood men in tights.
0: Oh God, yeah, Doug. I gotta ask, what is you, you've you've hinted at this, but I want to ask you more directly. What is your history with Gene Wilder? Are you a Gene Wilder fan? Do you usually like Gene Wilder movies? Have you seen these other movies he's
1: directed, and do you like them? Talk to me a little bit about you and Gene Wilder. I love Gene Wilder, but Gene Wilder is a kind of performer that. People have a lot of warm feelings about because when they think of him they only think of his best roles right They think of his work with Richard Pryor. they think of his work with Mel Brooks it, the fact that there's the fact that there are thirty films that are that are not those that are maybe a little bit lesser in some ways or maybe a lot lesser in other ways, and the fact that, that you know the final what, 10, 15 years of his life, maybe 20 years, he really wasn't working very much. So it, there was also a kind of fondness by subtraction in that case. Uh, I, I think that people maybe are a little softer on him as a performer because they just think of like Willy Wonka or they think of even even, even other movies like The Little Prince or something like that where he's kind of very memorable in smaller roles. I like The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. I find that to be a pretty... It feels like a much lesser Mel Brooks movie. Just like this feels like a much, much lesser Mel Brooks movie. And I do like Haunted Honeymoon and some of his more kind of broadly comedic movies in the 1980s. I like him as a performer, but he is someone that needs to be reined in. And I guess kind of ironically, he's best when he's really reined in. I think he's a good dramatic performer, and it's better when he's kind of when these kind of boisterous, loud yelling things happen very occasionally as opposed to every scene, which is what happens in this movie.
0: Yeah, I, my worry here was I'm probably one of those people who only remembers his strongest performances, and I would argue some of the ones that I most know are not great. Like, I, I'm not convinced that a lot of his movies with Richard Pryor are very good. Um, I'm I'm probably one of those people who thinks that Richard Pryor is an amazing stand-up who did not get many film opportunities to be funny. That's I, I don't know that that's a hard opinion, but it's certainly a soft opinion I have that it probably needs a little more research. But when I think about Richard Pryor on film, very rarely am I thinking about someone as funny as Richard Pryor doing stand-up. You Absolutely. Know what, you know it's I a mean? great
1: comparison because, yeah, they're they're both kind of everyone, like the common knowledge is these are two very funny people. Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder are very funny, though they're funny in different ways, and certainly Richard Pryor's stand-up is, is that's such a kind of... Um, Potent, direct vision of what his humor is, you know what he can be at his best because that stand-up exists to watch. And then when you see a watered-down version of it, you're like, well, that's not what I love about this guy. Well, what are they doing? How come they can't use him correctly? Gene Wilder only has his best films to compare it to, but it's a lot harder when someone else is in control, which is kind of one of the difficulties with this movie is that this is Gene Wilder's project through and through as you mentioned he wrote and directed he's the star he's the producer he even wrote the song at the core of the movie so it's uh, if there's anyone to blame about this movie not being as funny as it should be it's Gene Wilder I I guess
0: I'm still glad to hear you though because my worry was that maybe what i didn't like was Gene Wilder you know does that make sense like my yeah my, I, I didn't want it to be like oh this movie doesn't work for me because I just don't like Gene Wilder because I'm not sure that that's true that I don't like him but I can think of so many movies he's in that I don't think are great even though I can think of other movies he's in that I love so I, anyways I, didn't, I don't want to s- spend too much time on that but I but I do feel like for me as a viewer um this this wasn't um as tedious as as I think I'm inclined to make it sound, because right. I don't think it was very funny, and so a, a comedy that's not very funny sounds really tedious. And it and it wasn't. You know, it moved along. It had it had some dynamic tension. There were occasionally parts I found funny, but the vast majority of this movie wasn't funny for me. And I it was that that in and of itself was a bummer. Um, let's talk about the performances. You've mentioned a few of them. I want to say this. And this is saying a lot for me because I'll come out of the 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 shadows and admit I don't like Dom Deluise. Uh, yeah. Historically, I, I believe
1: I believe at the end of the, our most recent episode of Did this, I say that, that already? That yeah. you even said it's like I'm dreading this because I dislike Dom Deluise.
0: And this is probably in the top of his bad performances that I can think of. Like this is him just doing whatever he wants. It's not funny. The the scenes are way longer than they need to be. He isn't even that important for the plot of the film. He's supposed to be this like comedic core and it's not funny for a second. Uh, Talk to me about some of the other performances. How did you feel about the folks in this movie? And let's, we'll talk about Carol Kane at the end,
1: but the performances besides Carol Kane. Just going back to Don DeLuise for a second. Doesn't he just seem like the kind of guy that is great to have around in real life, right? Because sure, he's yeah. like he, he's he's funny in a way that it's great if you were out drinking. He's the guy who can make the funny faces, do all the funny voices, and he's just like, like he's always in a good mood, and he's all these. Bo- he would be a great person to hang out with, and he probably probably was a really good laugh in real life, and that makes everyone around him think, oh, he'll be this funny in a movie. When he does the same thing but when you see him in the movies it's just it's so desperate everything about him is just like uh the most uh, everything feels obvious about him so yeah i was not a fan of his performance in in this film the supporting performers I like the ones that are playing it straight for the most part, right? The, the, stuff, yeah. the stuff that doesn't feel as, as kind of obvious. And that's what makes these movies, or should make these movies work, where where the Gene Wilder and Carol Kane characters are a little more exaggerated compared to everyone else, or like that they're reacting to them. Um, but in terms of ones that, that really stand out, to me, it, it, the director performance was one that I, I mentioned that I enjoyed. Uh, but mostly that is because he is you know he is a character that is in control in the in the uh scenes where he has to direct these movies but the the people that he is he is is tasked with directing are ridiculous specifically the gene wilder character and uh then he has to go to the 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 owner of the studio played by dom de and kind of justify what's happened to him uh we do see david huddleston who people probably best know now from the big lebowski um And I always think of him from Blazing Saddles. He plays the owner of the bakery that we see briefly near the beginning of the movie. It was good to see him. He has almost nothing to do in this movie. Uh, And of course, Danny DeVito, who has almost literally nothing to do in the movie, is basically a cameo, except not even a cameo, because no one would have even known who he was at the time. There are probably a few familiar faces uh, from the works of... um, of Mel Brooks and kind of around that throughout the movie, but in terms of supporting performances that stand out, there aren't really that many. I mean, really, we're talking about like the actor who plays Abalone. He has this kind of back and forth about his last name that, frankly, it's supposed to be like an Abbott and Costello routine, but it doesn't work. Right? It's like it's not funny, so it just keeps going and going. We're just saying, "I'm a Abalone, Abalone. You're a Baloney. I'm a Baloney," and it's just it's fucking awful. And there's a few sequences like that that are played up to be like these works of really clever wordplay that are not. And that, I have to say, is, a, are, is very frustrating for me as a viewer, particularly as someone who enjoys that kind of comedy, that kind of wordplay comedy. When it's done badly, it just, it feels, <laughs> instead of being funny, it actually feels
0: depressing. There's a few of those moments, Doug, where it feels like they think if after one of those moments happen... Gene Wilder stares at the camera long enough, then that will make it funny. <laughs> and uh, funny enough, that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's really weird. Uh, yeah, I, I I will say that the performance I would, I have the most trouble evaluating is Gene Wilder's performance because I feel like the script is so not funny that uh, then I'm like, well, I don't know that he's doing anything wrong. In fact, this might be... Just Gene Wilder doing his thing. It's just what he's written for himself to do is bad. Does that make sense? Like, I, I don't yeah. know that I can separate his direction, his script, and himself enough to understand
1: what he's doing in the movie. Um, I mean, he's in a very difficult situation. Yes, uh, very he, much uh, that he's put himself into, but it's still very difficult, right? He's he has to carry the movie. Everyone knows that this is Gene Wilder's movie. We love Carol Kane, but the fact that she has so much screen time in this is, is very unusual for this period of her career. So we have Gene Wilder at the core of this movie. He wrote it. He directed it. He you know ha- needs to carry it in every way. And I think his interpretation of the best way to do that is to to do as much as possible and by doing so much he comes off as overbearing and and like i said silly because this is very silly uh, very very silly movie uh and like even going back to these kind of weird quirks of himself they don't lead to any there's one moment right the david huddleston moment is supposed to be hilarious where he's sticking his tongue out and his boss can see him sticking his tongue out but the owner of the business doesn't see it happening. So every time that guy turns away, he sticks his tongue out, and the guy gets more and more frustrated with he's sticking his tongue out. Here's the thing, it's not that funny. Even when people are getting more and more agitated, it's a classic kind of comedy setup, but because it's just someone sticking their tongue out as opposed to someone like, I don't know, fucking stabbing him or something like that, something very exaggerated, it feels very childlike. But the core of this movie isn't childlike, it's supposed to be somewhat sophisticated, so the mixture of that is just really uneasy throughout the movie.
0: There's also no build up. By the time we get to that scene, the the his direct supervisor who's making the case of the owner is already lost his shit screaming. Like yeah, he's exactly. already on edge. That might work if we built to that moment. There might be like a sense of like tension as it gets more and more ridiculous, but the the and this is a judgment call. You can disagree if you want. I don't think the film is confident enough to build to that moment. And I feel like there's a number of things like that where what makes some of that comedy work is the build up and there's no build up to a lot of these things they just sort of happen and i don't think the film has the confidence to build to some of that truly awkward
1: moment humor you know what i mean well and also the whole build of this movie is supposed to be built around an emotional core right, right. which is that that the emotional core is that you want to see these people get back together but he's a cartoon character so how can you possibly find that emotion when he's not even consistent from scene to scene he, he, in fact one of the defining elements about his character is that he irritates a lot of the people around him so uh, it's you don't really see any kind of sensitive moment that makes you think that by the end it's like i can't wait to see these people get back together and that's that's difficult because that is the entire crux of the final 20 minutes is that w- how are they going to end up back together again and i don't think this movie ever earns those kind of emotional notes i mean even the moment that gets him in front of of people, and maybe helps him
0: to become the you know, this actor, this world's greatest lover, is all about him losing his shit and assaulting someone, yeah, yeah. And and so, Jeff, you know, for, so we
1: should let people know. So, for people who haven't seen it, he does this audition, and yeah, he just kind of loses it. it. It actually doesn't really make any sense in the context of the movie, and he starts strangling the woman who's supposed to be doing the scene with him, and that is enough to get The attention of, I mean, it's it's it, there's a lot of kind of sub jokes here, but at the very least, it eventually leads to him becoming one of the three people picked as the next yes. potential Valentine, right? Um,
0: none of that work, and the film, I think, I don't want to go as far as to say like that in and of itself is too offensive for the movie to work, but I will say the movie isn't funny enough for me to forgive that moment, even though the moment isn't upsetting. It's just like cool. So this is just another inappropriate source of uh, of humor that you haven't been funny enough to justify. You know, like this is how I feel about all the jokes. A lot of the humor. You know what it feels like, Doug? When I was in middle school. When I was in middle school, y'all, it was like the early 90s, and we were still at the moment where anyone who was different, regardless if that difference was because of uh, difference in ability or, uh, you know, cultural, racial differences, whatever was different, you just mocked it. You mocked it because it was different, right? Yeah. Um, I thought about this the other day because, you know, I was I was at the park and there was a, a mom there who, you know uh, – uh, had, you know, some sort of medical condition where she looked slightly different than the rest of the people at the park. And I was thinking like, man, you know, when I was a kid, you would just make fun of someone even though that could be the, you know, something terrible or it could not. It could be something chronic or or it could not. Yeah. Whatever it is, you just made fun of it because it wasn't like everyone else. And I realized thinking about that Oh, that's how a lot of the humor is in this fucking movie is that it's just like this guy looks funny. This guy talks different. This guy. Of course, some of those differences are fucked. You know, Dom DeLuise, he he assaults all of his employees when they disagree with him. You know, like that's his weird difference. But none of those things are like the humor doesn't go past the fact that it's different. You know what I mean? Like it's just like, hey, this guy talks funny. And that's the whole joke. And and there's just something about that that it, 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 it doesn't offend me, but I just was like, I don't know why I'm supposed to think any of this is funny. Well, I
1: mean, it's, it is it is kind of an interesting conundrum at the core of a lot of movies, uh, a lot of comedic movies, which is that it's a, these movies want you to have a lot of empathy for the main characters. But the movie has no empathy for anyone else in the movie. Right. right? Yes. It's yeah. unable to un- be, understand why someone might be like this. Now, if someone's just a raging asshole, that can be funny to see them get their comeuppance. Yes. But th- th- in this case, there are people who are treated badly simply because of something that they can't control. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe they have an accent. Maybe they, you know, and and I'm not even talking about like a speech impediment, which of course happens in this movie as well. But I mean, it's just anyone who's different, as you said. The othering of everyone is the core of the comedy, and I'd much rather, if if you're gonna do it that way, then at least make it just the lead character who's like that. And yeah. maybe he has to get his come up, and so he learns a lesson. The lesson learned in this movie, I don't know, is is learned very well, either. The, the, I don't think it's much of a giveaway. Kyle at first, leaves him to uh, be with Valentino. He meets up with Valentino, gets to pretend to be Valentino. By the way, all this is, is very confusingly presented in the film. He pretends to be Valentino, they have sex, then he kind of tosses her off as a way to kind of make himself look like an asshole because he, again, is pretending to be Valentino. She is confused, she at one point is confused as a prostitute, which is not very funny either. Um, and then she she reconnects with him, he's gonna go off and do his final audition. She leaves, she leaves him a note saying that she's leaving, that she knows he's gonna do well, but that they just can't kind of be together. He reads the note before the audition and decides that what he wants more than anything else is to be with her. And in the context of this, he both impresses people enough to be the next Valentino, but then gets on a horse and runs out of the room to uh, catch up to her train to be with her. All of that sounds very convoluted because it is, and none of it connects, right? And like I said, because at that point, you don't have that emotional connection with these characters, the fact that he makes this decision that is supposed to be, how sweet, how maybe potentially romantic doesn't come off that way it just comes off as flat and and at the end he reveals that
0: she actually made love to him and not to valentino and she thinks that's the greatest uh okay well um, also
1: the woman that he uh assaults in those uh audition scenes they fall in love with him as well i guess that i i don't i don't even know how how to interpret that in a way that isn't offensive <sighs> before we move
0: on to – I think we should, you know, obviously end with Carol Kane. Before we do that, I just want to mention it again. If anyone listened to the last episode, they know this is the case. But, um, you know, Doug, are we, are we Philistines because we don't care about Rudolph Valentino? Like this is apparently an important cultural moment in 1977 looking back on his life and, and on the silent era in general. And yet again, I found myself thinking like what what is it that I completely don't understand – about this, and and should I reevaluate my knowledge of, of um, you know culture that I like don't connect
1: to this on any level? I think it's representative of a blind spot that a lot of people that we know that that include us have, which is sure, that when yeah. it comes to silent film, and the fact, of course, that so many silent films have been lost forever, so it's hard to contextually get a, a sense of what the the celebrity culture of that time period was like outside of the big names i think when you and i think of silent films that we enjoy they're almost exclusively comedies right because they're a lot easier to uh to kind of parse from the eyes of someone in the year 2021 so you probably maybe you like buster keaton and charlie chaplin and maybe harold lloyd and maybe fatty arbuckle and maybe a few other names listed to that but when it comes to the dramatic performers of that time period it's hard to disconnect the fact that this is Uh, a sort of filmmaking and a sort of performing that in some ways is primitive which not all of it is but certainly it feels that way and also the fact that they are broadly performing in a way that is so different than the kind of performances that we see that you might know a Lillian Gish or you might know a Greta Garbo or something like that people of that time period but when it comes to some of the other performers that captured people's imaginations we might not have that familiarity with them and you have to remember of course that in 1975 to 77 there were many people alive who experienced this in real time right that there were a lot of people still alive yes. at the yeah. height of valentino and they are aging right and they're telling their families like there was no one bigger than this man he was the sexiest person right people were like like falling all over themselves we are at this point you know 45 years removed from that so it, it it's i just think that culture has moved on from it Um, as much as our knowledge is limited. That said, neither you nor myself have gone back and watched a lot of Valentino. just doesn't hold a lot of interest to me. I mean, everything about it, it it feels uh, very much of its time period, even down to the fact that it's an Italian playing a different nationality in these roles. I mean, it just feels, not that that never happens anymore, but you know what I mean. It just just feels like um, we're talking about a mania that, lasted into a certain era and all of that feels in the very distant past yeah
0: yeah i agree i i'm i I think i'm at the point where i might be willing to read a book about it but i don't know that i'm gonna go back and find a bunch of these movies uh well you know here's the thing despite having covered it twice now this is actually not a podcast about rudolph valentino or silent (laughs) films it's a podcast about carol kane how did you feel about carol kane's performance in the world's
1: greatest lover it's nice to watch a movie that has a lot of Carol Kane in it and she is one of the stars of this film and and is credited on the on the poster and you know that's a nice thing. Unfortunately, her role is meant to be a supporting comedic role so she doesn't get to be as funny as she should be. You know what I mean? She always has to be I funny, agree. you know, as put at odds with her husband in the film who is again so broad and playing, you know, doing the funny voices and doing the the, the laryngitis and doing the tongue. She doesn't have those quirks, which is good, but it also means that for the most part, she is giving a semi-dramatic performance in a comedy while still being a cartoon character. And those elements really don't work together very well, unfortunately. I think she's still fine. And I think that she uh, is obviously a kind of a superior actor, you know what I mean? Where she, she's like a, just a better performer than most of the people that are in this film. But everything is meant to be at odds with the Gene Wilder character. So she doesn't get a lot of kind of showy moments. I will say that even though that that bit, <laughs> I didn't enjoy it very much where she gets mistaken for a prostitute, at least she gets to do something in that scene where she gets to be I agree. the center of attention in it and gets to you know do a little bit of that that wordplay and conversation and even gets to do some of that physical comedy that you mentioned earlier. Uh, I don't think it's a good showcase role for her, even if it does kind of reinforce, this is a performer that deserves better.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. I think she, you know, she's good at what she's asked to do. um, But we've already just in the short span of this podcast seen better performances. And I don't think that's because she doesn't show up. I just think, like you said, she's, She's in an, uh, an unenviable role as having to be the supportive comedic performance here. And she's not really given any real moments to be funny. Uh, and I, and we know, granted, we have the, the gift of history, that she can be very funny. She can be hilarious, actually. Uh, and, and maybe if she had had more moments to be hilarious, this would be a better movie. I don't know. Uh, but that being said, you know, she's good in it. And and I think she certainly her role is really there to support Gene Wilder. This is his movie. This is his chance to shine out. Uh, and I don't know that he does that, but I think she does what she's supposed to do in giving him the opportunities to do that and being almost like his, you know, quote unquote, straight man, if you know what I mean. So, you know, it's, it's not a movie that I would necessarily say our Carol Kane obsessed fan base should go out and find if they haven't seen it. But I don't think she's bad in it if you do want to give it a chance.
1: I think it's kind of it's a formative performance to a certain extent simply because right, yes. it's such a visible performance, and she again, there's, she's a, a, a big part of this movie. But when people watch the world's greatest lover, they think of it as a Gene Wilder film first and foremost because he is the star of it. And honestly, it's his failure that makes this movie not a success. Any. Any failing of this movie is not on her, and that's kind of you know for the for better or for worse. When we come away from this, I think we have kind of more negative feelings about Gene Wilder because it's like what, uh, he is what as at the core of what we don't like about this movie. But we have no negative feelings about Carol Kane, who is just trying her best with material that's not that great.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well. That was uh, 1977's uh, The World's Greatest Lover. On the next episode of Praising Kane, we're going to be talking about 1978's The Mafu Cage, directed by Karen Arthur. Um, the synopsis Ellen, a successful astronomer, cares for her mentally ill sister, Sissy, played by Carol Kane, who keeps a variety of primates in the home they inherited from their anthropologist father. When Ellen be- begins a romance, Sissy's jealousy proves deadly. Uh, I love this movie. I can't wait to discuss it with you. Uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. I mean, so hopefully... that
1: description sounds bonkers, I have to say. Oh, man. you,
0: I, I, I can say without feeling like I'm overhyping it that you have no idea, actually. <laughs> so uh, I can't wait to, for us to discuss it. I hope people will join us back here for the next episode of Praising Cain a part of Cinema Smorgasbord. Doug, if you want to know more about this (laughs) podcast, the family of podcasts that we're a part of, the
1: Greater Cinepunks Network, what should they do? Where should they go? Well, their first stop should be over to CinePunks.com, which has not only a variety of podcasts under that uh, under that banner, but also lots of great content, lots of great writing, a lot of uh, recent write-ups on the Fantasia Film Festival, and more to come in the near future, so check that all out at CinePunks.com and on all of your various social networks under the name CinePunks, including Twitter and Facebook. Uh, if you want to find all of our most recent episodes of Praise and Cain, they can all be found over at com, including all of our podcasts under the Cinema Smorgasbord title, including podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as Jackie Chan as Alejandro Jodorowsky as well go over there and check it out and if you have any suggestions in regards to podcasts maybe we might want to look at Uh, you can always leave us a uh, bit of feedback through our social media if you can follow us on Twitter at CinemaSmorg that's S-M-O-R-G or just uh, contact us through the website and if you have a uh, podcast provider of choice perhaps you can leave us a review we'd appreciate that both very much you can of course also follow Liam and myself on Twitter Liam at Liam Rules that's R-U-L-Z and I'm on there at Doug underscore Tilly that's T-I-L L e y. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks
0: so much for listening, everyone. We really appreciate your time and attention. We hope you'll tell a friend, and I hope you'll join us back here next time. Have a good evening. Good night. Ain't it kind of wonderful? Mm-hmm. Ain't Ain't it kind of fun, ain't it kind of chilling when you know that you are thrilling him and he is filling you with all the dreams that you had ever hoped would come true? Boo, 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 ain't it kind of marvelous? Oh, don't you think it's well?